All right. Well, good to see you tonight and glad that you're here. Those joining us by live stream, welcome. Glad you joined us as well. We are now to the second half of chapter 20 in the millennium period. Jesus has returned where the millennium is just about over. And uh, we're glad that you're here because Jesus is victorious. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you for our time together tonight to study your word. I thank you that you've told us everything that we need to know. Maybe not everything we want to know, but everything we need to know concerning the end times and concerning your victorious return to earth. Father, tonight with the Holy Spirit by our teacher, show us what you want us to know. Give us insight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the last uh, Wednesday night we looked at the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20, the thousand-year reign, the millennial reign of Christ. The word millennium in Latin means 1,000 years, and so that's why it's called a millennium if you ever wondered that. But it's the 1,000-year reign of Christ after Jesus returns to earth for the second time. So let's look first of all at letter A on your outline tonight, how we got here let's, and, and, and getting to where we are. Let's talk about that. John, of course, received the revelation on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day. One of the things he saw, he saw Jesus open the scrolls, and whenever he did, the seven-year tribulation began. We went through all the seven years of tribulation, and at the end of the seven years, Armageddon happens. That's where the armies of the nations gather around, hoping to overthrow Israel. Just in the, at the nick of time, just as it looks like, Jerusalem is teetering on falling. Jesus returns for a second time. A great earthquake splits. Babylon is destroyed, and uh, an army, army accompanies Jesus his enemies are defeated. Satan is bound. We saw the first part of that, chapter 20 last week. Satan is bound in the abyss for a 1,000-year reign. An angel binds him. And so that's where we left off last week with a 1,000-year reign of Christ. The six verses, we're not told a lot about it, only six verses in Revelation. Now, there are Old Testament passages, more than 300 Old Testament passages that talk about the millennial reign of Christ, but not really any in Revelation, not in the New Testament. So uh, we just kind of have to piece things together as far as details of what the millennium is going to be like. But tonight we arrive now at the end of the millennium after verse 6. So let's go to verse 7 now and look at the defeat of Satan. Letter B on your outline, verses 7 through 10. Now remember... The 1,000-year reign of Christ is a time on earth when Jesus reigns without any kind of satanic influence upon the world. Can you imagine that? Imagine living on earth without any kind of satanic influence at all. No evil influence. So people will live on earth for 1,000 years like they did before the curse in the Garden of Eden. There will be a theocracy. There won't be a democracy. There will be a theocracy where Jesus is the king and Jesus rules. Jerusalem is going to be the world capital. Uh, Israel is going to be the only superpower there, there is for 1,000 years. There will be no violence. There will be no crime. There will be no wars. There will be no conflicts. It will not be our heavenly state because we're still going to be humans but it will be a reign of peace on earth 
for 1,000 years. And there will still be those upon earth who do not become Christians. Can you imagine? Still be those on earth who refuse to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, after the 1,000-year reign of peace and good, and Jesus upon the earth, our passage this evening opens about Satan's release from the abyss or the bottomless pit. So let's look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Now let's talk about that for a moment. Satan has been bound and inactive for 1,000 years. My question was, if he's bound, leave him bound, right? Why let him go? Why unloose him? Well, a couple of theories. One is, some say, well, it's to show that Satan cannot be reformed, uh, that he cannot be improved. His nature is just evil because as soon as he gets out, he goes back to doing what he was doing before. And so some say, well, it's to show that Satan is the great evil, the embodiment of evil, and, and so everything that he, he does is evil, and, and he's not going to be reformed. And so he's let out to show that, well, maybe. Another theory is to show the depravity of human beings. Because even without Satan, a lot of people still don't choose Christ. And so it's to show the depraved nature of humanity. Well, maybe so. But for whatever reason, we know after 1,000 years of being bound in hell, he's going to be unbound. Now, notice the word that's used here in verse 7. It says he will be released. Doesn't say he broke out. Doesn't say he got out. Doesn't say he wormed himself out of there. It says he's released. Now that's important because if you remember last week, whenever he was cast into hell, it says that uh, the abyss, it says that, that he, it was sealed where he couldn't get out. And remember, sfragidzo, it's the exact same word that's used for our salvation being sealed. So if you remember last week, I mentioned to you that Satan has no more chance of getting out of hell than you do of being lost again once you're saved, because both are sealed. So how did he get out? Well, the seal had to be broken. He's not strong enough to break it, so God broke it, and, and God allowed him to get out. So the word released is used, not escaped. He didn't escape. In fact, it's interesting, the word unloose there is the word, it's one of the, most, one of the first words you learn in, in Greek and studying the language, it's luo, which means to loosen or to unbind, but it literally means to un, unwrap a bandage. So the picture is Satan is bound, wrapped up, and he's unwrapped. He's unloosed where he can once again have the freedom. He's not even powerful enough to get out on his own. He has to be released. He has to be God finally saying, okay, you can get out for a moment, and he does. So verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison or the abyss. Look at verse 8. 
And then he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now let's notice a couple of things about verse 8. Notice that as soon as he gets out of the prison, the abyss, for after 1,000 years, he goes back to doing the exact same thing he had done before. He didn't learn. He wasn't in there for rehabilitation. He's Satan. His nature is evil. So he goes right back to doing what he had done before. What was he doing whenever God threw him in there to begin with? He was deceiving the nations. That's what he's doing right now. All the nations of the world are deceived because they think it's better off without Christ. And that's what the enemy's doing. He's deceiving the nations. Right now, nations are deceived. When the deception is taken away, everybody will realize, oh no, it's best to follow Christ. And then Satan gets back out again, and everybody says, oh yeah, we need to overthrow Christ. Right now, if a nation tried to have a theocracy where Jesus would rule, oh my goodness, there would be lawsuits and there would be people all up in arms. You can't do that. What about the other religions? The nations are deceived. So when he gets out, he's going to go back. And what he's doing, he can't help himself. That's his nature. He's trying to overthrow Christ. And so, once again, he begins deceiving the nations into thinking they're better off without submitting to Christ. They're not, and we know that, but that's what the nations think. So, Satan, when he gets out to see the nations, and he's going to gather an innumerable number of soldiers... To, from all around the world to come against Jesus one last ditch effort to overthrow him. Notice it says from the four corners of the earth. That doesn't mean the earth is square. Doesn't mean that God thinks the earth is square and he's mistaken. I know critics of the Bible saying, oh, God thinks the world's square. Keeps talking about the four corners of the earth. The world's round. The Bible doesn't even know the world's round. I've heard critics say that for centuries it's a euphemism, four corners of the earth is a euphemism, meaning the whole world doesn't mean it's square. So a euphemism for the, all over the entire world, armies are going to be gathered, Satan's going to lead them, one last attempt to overthrow Jesus. By the way, I'll give you a spoiler alert, it fails miserably. But we'll get to that in just a moment. But I want you to notice where they come from. Did you see verse 8? Gog and Magog. Where is that? Russia. It's the north. Uh, basically, it could, no other, the region of Gog and Magog could be no other country except Russia. So Russia is going to play a role, a key role, in the armies coming back together to try to overthrow Jesus one last time. But hold on a second. Do you remember all the way back a couple of chapters ago when the Battle of Armageddon happened? Gog and Magog was a part of that. 
and they were defeated. How are they going to regather another army when it's a time of peace? So there are some theologians kind of scratching their head. Wait a minute, they were already defeated. Are they going to be reorganized? Well, some people say yes, they're going to reassemble again and come at Jesus one more time, even though they lost the last time in Armageddon. Others say, well, Gog and Magog, that term, may just be a symbol for everything that opposes God. And that's possible. We kind of do it with world wars. Uh, they could kind of do it, Gog and Magog, symbolic of all the nations that will come against. Maybe, we don't know. But we do know Gog and Magog are mentioned again at the end of the millennial reign, just like they were mentioned at the beginning of the millennial reign when they were defeated. And it tells us that all of these armies together are going to be great in number like the sand of the sea. Now, here's my question. Who are these? We've had a time of peace. We've had a time of no violence, no crime. It's been perfect peace. Who in the world is going to be the army that gathers to try to overthrow Jesus one more time? Who does Satan go after as his army? Well, most likely... Those that in the 1,000-year reign that were the offspring of believers, because remember when the millennial reign started, it was just believers here. It's going to be believers' children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren that grow up that don't receive Jesus. And they're going to be organized into an army to come against him. Think about that. 1,000-year reign of peace... Still, there will be those, our relatives, that will not choose Christ, that will not become believers, and they're going to form an army to come against him. Now, something I think is important to note. For 1,000 years, there was nothing but a perfect environment, a perfect government, Perfect rule, perfect conditions, and there will be still those people who will not follow Christ and revolt against him. For 1,000 years, no crime, violence, no Satan, no evil, no social pathology, no wars, no conflicts, and still there will be rebellion against the Creator. You know what that tells me? It tells me environment's not the problem. Environment's not the problem. How many times do we hear today people say, well, you know, if I'd been raised in a better environment, I would be different. No, you wouldn't. You had the same heart. Well, if, if I'd been raised in a different environment, I wouldn't have turned to drugs, or I, I wouldn't have turned to alcohol, or I wouldn't have turned to crime. And we hear that. It's environment. No, no. The environment's perfect. And people reject Christ. Because they still have a human heart, a depraved heart. Well, if I'd been raised in a better location, if I had a different family, if, if, I, if I had different influences upon me, no, no, you still have the same heart. Well, if I hadn't been abused whenever I was young, no, no, 
we can make excuses. And yes, they do. These factors may affect us. But we cannot ultimately blame somebody else. Our issue is not our environment. It's our heart. Because the reign of good and lawfulness didn't change the human heart in the millennium. Perfect conditions do not produce perfect hearts. Only a transformation by Jesus Christ will change your heart. Not the environment. Don't put a new, no, don't put a new suit on a man think you have a different man. You don't. It must be a transformation. Only God can change the human heart. A perfect environment still leads to rebellion. And if you think about it, go all the way back to Genesis 2, Garden of Eden. Perfect environment. And they rebelled against the Creator. So the millennium shows us it's not environment. It's the human heart. So Satan gathers all these people, all these people who are against the Lord and tries to come against Jesus one more time. Look at verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. Where is that? Probably Jezreel. You remember the perfect battlefield we talked about several weeks ago? That's when the Battle of Armageddon is going to be fought in the Valley of Jezreel. Perfect battlefield. You come over it. There's a broad plain there. It's described as the broad plain in Scripture. They're coming back to the same Valley of Armageddon, Valley of Jezreel. So they're coming once again where they lost the last time over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Who's that? Israel and Jerusalem, right? The saints, God's people who have come back to rule. This, this, the great city, his city, beloved city, is Jerusalem. And so the enemy is going to be let out of the abyss, gather the nations together, deceive them into thinking they can overthrow Jesus, gather an army together, march over the valley of, of Jezreel, surround Israel, and surround Jerusalem, and they think, aha, we finally won. They have no army. And guess what? In the verse 9, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Battle over in three words, and consumed them. Battle over. Wasn't much of a battle, was it? So they're gathered, thinking this is it, and fire falls from heaven, just like Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Fire fell from heaven and consumed all the armies of the earth. Battle didn't last long, but look at verse 10. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Let's look at verse 10 for a moment. So after Satan leads an attack, he's, he fails, and then his end comes. He is thrown into what the Bible calls the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire is what you, what you think of when you think of hell. There are many other words 
other word descriptions in Scripture. Some of them may not all be referring to hell. It may be just referring to the place where the dead are. Sheol from the Old Testament just references where the place of the dead. Hades, a New Testament word, references the place of the dead. Uh, Gehenna uh, from the Valley of Hinnom where they worship children's sacrifice southwest of Jerusalem. Gehenna is a reference to the place of the dead. But Lake of Fire is hell. It's what you always have pictured as hell, the lake of fire and the lake of sulfur. So Satan's going to be taken and thrown in there. Now I want you to notice something interesting. It tells us in verse 10, the devil who deceived them thrown in the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet were. Do you remember at the beginning of the millennium, Satan had an unholy trinity, just like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He mocked his own beast, false prophet, and the devil. And so at the beginning of the millennium, the beast and false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire, and Satan was thrown into the abyss, but he got to get out. But now he goes to the lake of fire where the prophet and the false prophet and the, and the beast are. Did you notice that 1,000 years of being in the lake of fire did not consume the false prophet and the beast. Notice that. So those people who think when you die you're annihilated and you cease to exist, they're wrong. You don't die in hell. You just stay alive. Look at the end of verse 10. Where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They're still there. You see, a lot of people that don't believe in Christ, they hope for annihilation. That's not going to happen. It's nothing, it's eternal. Hell's eternal. And that's what's described here. John Trapp, years ago, the old preacher years ago, he says the eternal aspect of the lake of fire is what he calls, quote, hell within hell. The fact you can't get out is hell within hell. You can't get out. False prophet and beast, they're there a thousand years. They're still there. And now Satan joins them. The Bible describes hell in the strongest language the Greek can convey. I know, I understand, we live in a world that doesn't like to believe in hell. And if we still believe in hell, people kind of mock us and laugh at us. Oh, oh, yeah, you Christians, I forgot you still believe in hell. Yeah, yeah. Kind of laughing the devil with, with a pitchfork. And we're kind of scoffed at for believing in that nowadays. But Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Did you know that? And the Bible uses the strongest language Greek can convey to describe it. It's described as mental anguish, physical anguish, lake of fire, sulfur, outer darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth, weeping. It's described where your worm doesn't die. And the worm that's used there, the phrase there in, in, in the Gospels literally means your conscience. So it's a place where your conscience never dies. And it is described as unquenchable fire. So our, our culture can believe what it wants about hell. Jesus and the Greek construction in the New Testament describes it very vividly, saying it's a place of torment where Satan, the false prophet, and the beast are tormented day and night.
forever. Now go to letter C on your outline. Let's look at the judgment before the great white throne, verses 11 to 15. The judgment before the great white throne. Verse 11. Then I saw, it's actually and, it's Kai. And I saw a great white throne. And him whose was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Let's stop there because there's some fascinating points in verse 11. John sees Satan being cast into the abyss and the lake of fire and sulfur. And now it's all of a sudden, it's like a, a, another video clip appears in front of you. It's another scene. And so you click and you see another scene. And now he sees in heaven a great white throne and God sitting on the throne. The word and is interesting uh, because it, it, is, it means a continuous sequence. It means after this, after this, after this, after this. So we know it's going to happen in a sequential form. In fact, it's interesting in the original language, almost every single verse of the entire chapter 20 begins the word and. Which means it's all continuous sequence. It happens one right after another after another. So a great white throne is what he sees. That represents great status. White purity, throne authority and rule. So whoever is sitting on it is great and powerful and authoritative. Who is it? It's God. So God is sitting on the great white throne. Now, two other passages in Revelation tells us there are thrones, plural, in heaven. Revelation 4.2 and Revelation 5.7 said, I saw thrones, plural, in heaven. So why now is one called the great white throne? Because it appears to be one God, God is sitting on, where God resides, not other thrones. And this appears to be the final judgment. But notice what verse 11 tells us. I saw a great white throne, and then I saw the presence of earth and sky fleeing. So God is about to judge the world, and heaven and earth says, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I don't want to be around. I don't want to stick around for the judgment. They are leaving. And now we've come to the final dealings God will ever have with the earth right here in its atmosphere, the sky and the earth. They're, they're, they're getting out of here. They're, they're gone. They're, they don't want to be around for the judgment. They, they flee. Now, I know Jehovah Witnesses and there are other denominations as well say that this earth is going to remain and this is going to be heaven right here. Everybody's going to populate the earth what we're living on and this is going to be heaven, but not according to Scripture. Heaven and earth leave. This is the last dealings God ever has with earth right here. Verse 11, earth and heaven flee, and there's no hiding. Now, question, will, will we be there? Will Christians go through the great white throne judgment? I've always been told no. Church I grew up in in Oklahoma. No, 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 Christians, we don't, we don't go through the great white throne judgment. And I've always heard many believers say, no, no, we, we're not judged. We're, that's for the lost people. 
And others say, well, no, no, Christians were judged at the beginning of the millennium, at the end of Armageddon, according to Isaiah 65, a reference maybe. But Paul tells us in Romans 14, 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the bima, that's what he, word he used, which meant judgment. So Christians will stand before the judgment. Now, our verdict is different, but we're judged. Nobody escapes judgment. Nobody. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't escape judgment. We just satisfy it in Christ. So our verdict is different. If you're saved tonight, if Jesus Christ has become a part of your life, you will stand before God as I will stand before God, but the verdict will be not guilty on the blood of Christ. But you'll stand there, and so will I. The verdict's different. We'll all be judged, what Paul said. And then notice the next phrase. And there was no, found no place for them. What does that mean? Whenever judgment happens and those that are lost are cast into hell, hell is not a place designed for humans. You're, you're not supposed to be there, but there's no other place found for you for rejecting Christ. You have to be separated from his presence. In fact, Jesus, Matthew 25, verse 41 says, Hell was designed for Satan and his angels. It wasn't designed for you. Never designed for humans. It was designed for Satan. But there was found no place for them. Where else do you go if you're, if you're lost and you don't trust Christ? You don't have a place. So you're cast in a lake of fire. There's no, found no place for them. Can you imagine going to a place never designed for you? A place so horrible, it's only designed for Satan, not you. It was designed for the worst evil imaginable, but there's no place for you. So that's where you go. There's found no place for them. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Let's talk about verse 12 for a moment. Imagine the scene. John said, I looked, I saw a great white throne, and I saw people as far as you can imagine. Great, small, big, large. I saw people as far as you can see all standing before the throne of God. You know, I still run into people from time to time that say, I don't like to go to church. I don't like being in crowds. You're going to be in one there. You're going to be in a big crowd there. And I would rather come here amongst a smaller crowd and confess Jesus as Lord and my verdict to be right than to ignore God's people and God's word here and stand before a great crowd and be judged where I'm guilty. 
So I see all these people. Now, evidently, those dead that have died for all the years, they have their bodies back and, and their souls back because he doesn't see spirits. He sees people. And the books were opened. Several times in the Bible, um, it says that our actions are recorded in books. Everything you do and think, recorded in a book. Deuteronomy 32 says that. Psalm 56 says that. Isaiah 65 says that. Daniel 7 says that. Malachi 3 says that. Matthew 12 says that. Whatever we do, recorded in books. And the books were opened. So you're judged based on actions. How many actions, bad actions, do you have to commit to be out of God's presence? Well, he's holy, so the standard's one. And everybody's transgressed one. But another book was opened, he said. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And those are the ones that have their sins, all their actions, covered by the blood of Christ. Now, make a note here, folks. These are not all the ones who walked an aisle at church. It didn't say that. It didn't say, and the books were open, and everybody who had a church membership doesn't say that. Everybody whose, whose actions are covered in the blood of Christ, because not everybody who walks an aisle and signs a card and joins a church is truly saved. So the book of life and the church membership role, they're not the same. And they don't contain the same names. But another book was opened, and it's the book of life. And they were judged according to what they'd done. Bad action, covered in the blood of Christ. Greg Ammons, what you did, covered in the blood of Jesus. What you thought, covered in the blood of Christ. His sufficiency is mine on that day. Praise God. So failure to believe in Jesus and accept Christ, according to John 6, 29, is what makes you not get to go to heaven. Now, think about this. It's a trial. It's called a bema seat. It's the great white throne. And so you're standing before the judge. But this is not a trial to determine facts. It's not a trial to determine guilt or innocence. The facts are in. They're in a book. It's, a, it's the sentencing phase. It's not trying to reach the verdict. It's the sentencing. Are there degrees of punishment for the wicked? There appears to be, just like there are degrees of rewards for the saved, because even the lost are judged according to what they did. Look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death, and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. We're told that two verses in a row. They're judged according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead. You see, for the, so, so in other words, what, what John appears to be saying is those people who were like buried at sea and never found, they'll be resurrected and stand there. Now, to a Jew, the most abhorrent thing that could happen to you is drown at sea. The Jews, as I've shared with you before, had a deathly fear of water. I mean, they were scared. They felt that ghosts lived under at the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of bodies of water. 
And that's why Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee, and they go, it's a ghost. They thought ghosts lived down there, and they thought not even, not even God had control of the bottom of the sea. Oh, kind of weird things live down there is what they thought. Not even God had control of the sea. So that's why Jesus walked on water so much, to show he had control even of the sea. And so the worst thing that could happen to a Jew was, was, was dying at sea, and it says the sea gave up the dead. Death and hell gave up who was in them, and each of them were according to what they had done. Now, this is nothing like our courtroom system. If you have pictured in your mind, oh, it's like one of our courts. It's not. Because in this court, it's different. In this court, you have a judge, but you have no jury. And you have a prosecution, but you have no defense. And you have a sentence, but you have no appeal. So it's, it's not like our courts. It's, it's different. And no one can stand there and say, God, you are unfair. Because there's nothing unfair about him. He gave us chance after chance after chance to repent from our ways and turn to Christ. And if we don't, that's on us. Not on him. It's, that's on us. So, he's, he'll not be unfair, and no one will stand and accuse him of being unfair. It's the sentencing phase. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So now, death and hell thrown into the fire. The last vestiges of sin and death are now gone. Finally, there will be no more death. Folks, do you know how, do you know what a great day that's going to be? Death has hounded you and me all of our lives. We, we try to put it off. We exercise. We take vitamins. We, we try to keep death as far away as possible, but this insatiable monster eventually gets us. We all die. This insatiable monster who has tormented humanity since the fall of, of mankind in the Garden of Eden is finally gone for good. Some of you have lost loved ones. Death's hard, isn't it? Death is really hard. And finally to see it gone forever will be a great day. Dr. Sweet used to say, at this moment, death will now have to disgorge his prey. He no longer has prey. This is the second death. What does he mean by that? Well, if you die once physically, that's the first death. If you die spiritually, it's the second death, but you live forever. You just are spiritually dead. There is a second life and a higher life, so there's a second death and a deeper death. As there is no more life after death, so after death there is no more life. And that's what he's telling us. Death and hell cast into the lake of fire forever. One last verse. We'll close verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
I don't know how much plainer to make it to you than that. I'm sorry, I, I can't expound on that a whole lot. Pretty clear, isn't it? If you're not saved, if, you, if there's never been a time in your life you've prayed to receive Christ, you'll stand before God at the judgment and you're thrown into the lake of fire. You don't get a second chance to come back in reincarnation as somebody's grandmother. You, you are gone forever. You have one life and one chance. And so those who, names of the lost, absent from the book of life, their fate is sealed. No more second chances. So here there will be mischief without measure and crying without comfort and punishment without pity and misery without mercy. That's it. The concept of eternal punishment. I know it's unpopular in our day, but Jesus spoke very plainly about it. And, and this doesn't show that there's any kind of reincarnation, does it? 60% of Western culture, according to the last uh, research that I saw, 60% of Western culture said reincarnation's real. 60%. Not Eastern culture, Western culture. 60% said it's a, quote, reasonable probability I'll be reincarnated and come back. Revelation eleven fifteen twenty fifteen 2015 says, nope, you don't. You're thrown into the lake of fire. So we know reincarnation's not true from that one verse. But here's something else we know is not true. Universalism's not true. There is a belief system that's going around. It's actually becoming more popular in, in evangelical churches than it used to be. When I first went into ministry, you never hardly hear of it anymore. It's kind of making a comeback. It's, it's a doctrine called universalism. And it became a lot more popular when a pastor in Tulsa, an evangelical church, came out several years ago and said, you know, I've been studying Scripture, and I think universalism is accurate and true and right. And, and universalism is the belief that everybody eventually goes to heaven. Everybody. Doesn't matter who you are. Well, if I'm lost, I want to believe universalism. But there's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. Verse 15, there's no universalism to it. That everybody gets to go to heaven. That God will look at you and, oh, yeah, you had a rough life. Yeah, you tried hard. You tried your best. Oh, you know, you, you made some mistakes. But overall, you're good at heart. Come on in. There's none of that. It's, it's whoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. There's no universalism. And there's no reincarnation. You have to have it right when you die. And that's why this passage is so poignant, so powerful, because this isn't a practice preacher talking. This is John telling what he saw when he looked into heaven. Now, one last thought, and we'll, we'll close. Somebody say, well, isn't this kind of um, unfair of God to cast us into hell? But you know, like Warren Wearsby says, if, if we saw sin just one time the way God saw it from pure eyes and a holy heart, we don't look at it from a pure eyes and a holy heart, but if we saw sin just one time as God sees it, we would understand why a place, a place called hell needs to exist. So you're going to have, if universalism, you're going to have Billy Graham and Adolf Hitler sharing the same glory. 
That doesn't make sense, does it? That doesn't sound like a just God, does it? So hell has to be, has to be real, has to be an option. But God has graciously given us the opportunity to choose life, choose Christ, where our sins are covered and our verdict is not guilty and all the actions in the book covered under the blood of Christ. Well, it's a powerful passage. Next Wednesday night, starting in chapter 21, we get to start talking about heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. And for the next two or three Wednesdays, we're going to talk about what we think heaven may be like. You may be surprised, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in the weeks to come. If you have any questions after the service, uh, feel free to see me or shoot me an email this week. I'll be glad to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today that you have offered Jesus Christ for us and that, that those who trust him are written in the Lamb's book of life and our eternity and fate is sealed with you. And I praise you for that. God, help us to always be ones to share the message of Jesus, the message of the good news that we don't have to stand before God one day at the judgment unprepared. We can stand there with a different verdict in Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.